This podcast is brought to you by Western Reformed Seminary, the Reformed Seminary of the Great Pacific Northwest. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thank you for joining us today on Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and uh, I'm the pastor at uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and a guy I've known. How long have we known each other, Carl? Um, 13, 14 must years, be something like that. 13. It seems like a lifetime. It seems like right? a very, it may only be 13 years. It's, it's been horrible. Um, yeah. But I, I am joined uh, by Carl Truman, who is a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And he's he's recently written a book that's uh, gotten a lot of attention. It sold like you know a dozen dozen and a half copies or so. And he's just been impossible to be around lately. Um, <laughs> hey, I was referred to in a speech the other day as one of God's gifts to humanity. <laughs> Thank you to Professor <laughs> Helen Alvare of the Antonin Scalia Law School. <laughs> well, and you know, the, the, here, here's how you know that you've made it, Carl. Here's how you know you've arrived is you've actually had Ben Shapiro. Tell Jordan Peterson about your book. I mean, that's that, that's that's like a hole opened up in the space-time continuum. I mean, that that's that's earth-shattering, Copernican revolutionary kind of stuff going you, on. You can tell how strange a college Grove City is. <laughs> a student came up to me after that and said, "Dr. Truman, you are an iconic figure on campus." I said, you know, in any other campus in the USA, I'd been escorted off by security. (laughs) When Ben Shapiro mentioned you like that. To Jordan Peterson. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so, I mean, you can imagine folks out there, you can imagine how hard it's been to be around Carl. He's wearing this Ben Shapiro t-shirt right now. And it's, it's just, it's uh, the, the pandering is, is almost unbearable, but uh, we, we are excited because we decided to, um, talk about a topic that's not controversial at all today. So it's going to be just super easy. Of course, I'm being sarcastic because um, we are uh, talking with a special guest today. His name is Thaddeus Williams. Uh, Now, Thaddeus is uh, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Talbot School of Theology. He also does work for all kinds of uh, great organizations, Blackstone Legal Fellowship, Federalist Society in D.C., et cetera, et cetera. He lives in Southern California. Um, with his family. Now, he is the author of a recent book, which has been gaining uh, lots of uh, significant and well-deserved praise. I imagine behind the scenes and maybe not so behind the scenes, he's taken lots of shots because of this book as well. The title of the book is Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. Now, that's you know, as I mentioned uh, to him offline earlier, you know, he's just grabbed the third rail by both hands um, in writing this book. And we are very thankful that he's done that. So um, Thaddeus, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's a joy to be with you. I got to say, I'm a little bit envious of 
not just that Ben Shapiro is, you know, <laughs> referring Carl's book, but the sales numbers that you quoted, man, a dozen to a dozen and a half. Oh yeah, yeah, it, it's that, it's uh, it's pretty extraordinary. That's double my book sales. <laughs> half of those are from my mom. <laughs> I've, I've shifted up to ordering stuffed crust pizzas. Actually. Wow! <laughs> yeah, when yeah, they've, I, they've gone from I, Domino's to Pizza Hut, so it's a big step. When I take my wife to McDonald's for fancy date nights. I'll tell her to supersize it now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, listen, you know, Thaddeus, in all seriousness, I, I, I'm, I'm quite sure you've, you've taken some, some shots on this as well. And I would just tell our, our, our listeners here um, that the, the book is, is critical of what oh, Professor John McWhorter would refer to as the religion of wokeness. Um, but it's a very thoughtful book. He criticizes this movement in a very thoughtful way, in what I believe is a very biblical way. Um, it is not just a, a screed against things like critical race theory, although critical race theory needs to be criticized, um, but it's also very helpful and reflective for Christians who want to think through issues of justice um, in a biblical and faithful way. It is not insignificant that John Perkins wrote the foreword uh, for your book. I mean, Thaddeus, I mean, that's kind of a win, uh, yeah. I, I would think. Yeah, that was, that was pretty huge. He's, uh, sort of taken me under his wing, uh, for the last, let's say year and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a stretch there where we were talking a, a couple times a week and you gotta love, you know, he's celebrating his 91st birthday, mm -hmm. uh, this month actually. Mm -hmm. And so there's a bit of a, uh, technology use disconnect where we'll talk <laughs> yeah. for an hour on, uh, on FaceTime and I'm just, I'm staring at his chin for <laughs> 50 minutes of it. But now yeah. he, uh, the thing I respect about him is, and he writes in the forward that, you know, sort of passing the torch to the next generation of Christians who care about justice and take scriptures, justice command seriously. He, he lays out these four, you know, tidbits of wisdom, these four nuggets of wisdom, you know, number one, start with God. If you don't have a theocentric vision of justice, it's not going to be real justice. Mm -hmm. Number two, start with our oneness in Christ. You know, he loves to say after the title of his book that we're one blood. So he says, if you buy into any ideology, whether it's, you know, CRT on one side or white supremacy on the other, that's, um, would have you feel superior based on the melanin levels in your skin, uh, then you aren't doing real justice. Uh, he says, number three, you got to start with the gospel. And that's something I've appreciated about his work over the last 60 years. Um, talking about the gospel and race is that he's always kept the historic gospel center stage. And then he says, fourthly, and I sort of patterned the book after these, these four points, um, teach the truth. Truth isn't what, our fallen subjective feelings say it's not what politicians say or what's trending on Twitter says it's what scripture says. And so I think uh, those four insights from a living legend of the civil rights movement really helped frame the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder without um, trying to do a thorough background and history of critical race theory, obviously people are, um, are asking about critical race theory because it's getting lots and lots of attention. As a pastor, I'm asked about critical race theory routinely, and I'm finding myself needing to, to kind of speak into that issue. I, I was telling Carl the other day, I'm on my fourth book 
a scholarly book just on studying the Frankfurt School. You know, so I mean, I'm I'm doing lots yeah. of catch up work on this. Although when I was in seminary in the 90s, my main course of reading was liberation theology, and particularly yep. Jürgen Moltmann. And of course, liberation theology is the is kind of the uh, the, the religious uh, child of, of critical race theory or critical theory in a lot of ways. Now, yeah. so, so we can't do a full, you know, di- uh, explanation in history of critical race theory, but I wonder if, if, if you kind of help some of our folks um, briefly understand how, or, or at least some of the ways that critical race theory goes afoul of the gospel. Sure. So I, the more I've been thinking about it, even since writing the book, I think the best uh, analogy to really get at the heart of critical race theory would be a broken black light. So mm-hmm. think of, you know, my wife and I are into a lot of crime shows, criminal minds and things mm-hmm. like that. And you show up at a crime scene and there's this tool for spotting injustice and pursuing, you know, the, the real criminal that justice might be done. And in a black light, you flip off the lights and the UV rays will expose blood spatters that are invisible to the naked eye. They can spot phony currency. Um, they can find bruises on a, on a cadaver that would otherwise be invisible. So there's this raging debate right now in the evangelicalism about whether CRT is best understood as a comprehensive worldview rivaling Christianity or whether it's just a useful tool for spotting injustices that might otherwise be invisible to us. And, you know, I I certainly think it's a worldview for a long list of reasons we could dive into, but let's just grant that it is a tool. Um, If it is a tool, then just like a broken black light, um, it misses huge puddles of blood on the floor. It, It it misses real injustices. And I list a few in the book that, you know, in all the conversations of systemic racism in CRT literature, you don't find a, a peep. You don't, you don't find a word. There's not, you know, an ounce of ink spilled over the fact that 16 to 19 million black image bearers have been terminated by the abortion industry mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade in, in 1973. Yeah. There's not a word about that. Uh, and, and so it's a busted blacklight in the sense that it, it completely sweeps over or glosses over many real injustices. Mm. And on the flip side of that, it's spots. It, it can't discern between what, what's a mustard stain on the wall and what's a blood splatter. Right. Um, so it will identify things as injustice that on closer inspection aren't. Yeah. Uh, so for example, um, the charge is leveled that, oh, well, the, the New Jersey turnpike troopers are a bunch of white supremacists because they're handing out twice as many speeding tickets uh, to people with more melanin in their skin cells. Uh, and then an independent research organization set up high-speed cameras and determined that, indeed, the speeding rate on the turnpike was about a two-to-one ratio between black and white drivers. Yeah. Now, before people think, oh, well, there goes Williams, you know, being a racist and um, accusing black people of, you know, breaking traffic laws. What the research found was that the median age in in that area of New Jersey um, for a white driver was north of 40. 
uh, and the median age for a black driver was somewhere in the 20s. And so what on first inspection at first glance looks damnable, look at those racist cops, turned out to be a matter of basic common sense, which is younger people drive faster, older people drive slower. Uh, but you can't even ask those questions under CRT because, you know, according to Ibram X. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo or Angela Davis or fill in the blank, any disparity is automatically discrimination. Right. And then just briefly, a, a third way that the black light of CRT is busted is that if you read scripturally, you know, the reformers highlighted evil as that that trifecta of the world the flesh and the devil. And Jesus is often speaking, you know, he's come to set us free. Uh, if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And so Jesus does talk about liberation um, from oppression, from satanic oppression, from the oppression of our own, you know, sarks in the Greek, our flesh, our sin nature. Um, and that's something that CRT completely glosses over. And I find with you know, whether it's students or friends or even a few family members who get swept up in CRT, that they get so passionate about, you know, confronting hegemonic power and calling out microaggressions that when it comes to really facing the, the oppression of the world of flesh and the devil, it becomes, it's, it's not even a blip on their radar. They don't, in other words, their priorities become radically out of sync with what Jesus cared about when he talked about freedom. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting comments. And it actually reminds me sort of tangentially of a comment I heard Archbishop Chaput, former Roman Catholic Archbishop of Philadelphia, make relative to the gay issue, talking about uh, pastoral care and how to address pastorally those who are struggling with, with homosexual temptation to the extent that, you know, we, we must allow our pastoral approach to be driven by our theology. We do not yep. allow our, our emotional empathy, if you like, to be the first thing that lays the foundation for our approach. And hearing Absolutely. you describe uh, critical race theory then, it seems that there's a sense in which one can see why it appeals, because mm -hmm. it, it, it gives shape and a grounding for the empathy we feel to anybody we see suffering sure. or, or being persecuted. On the other hand, if it's not grounded in, in the truth or the truth of the gospel, then it becomes simply a kind of uh, contentless emotion or at worst emotion with, with bad content. Sure. Um, I argue in the book that it's, it's, it's cruel on yeah. a deep level because you think of the famous wedding passage, you know, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, one of the marks of love is that it's not easily offended. And, and CRT particularly in its popular expressions, inspires people and encourages people and rewards people for being chronically offended. You think of Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. You know, in my experience teaching over 300 students a semester at Biola, I find the students that get swept up in it replace the fruit of the spirit with their antithesis that, yeah. you know, it's resentment and rage and assuming the worst of others motives. And yeah. so at the end of the day, it, it masquerades as empathy, but it's just downright mean. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I wrote something earlier this year, uh, first things in the magazine on critical race theory. One of the things I raised there was I asked a question of a, a woman who'd written an article in Christianity today, where she used the phrase, 
I think it was effectively uh, the so-called shared faith of white and black Christians. And in the article, I simply asked for clarification on what the, you know, was she saying that we didn't share faith mm -hmm. or how, I'm yeah. reliably informed that, uh, that, that she has seen that as a personal attack upon her. Yeah. So we have yeah. this rather odd situation where you have people want to be public intellectuals and throw their weight around in the public sphere, but one cannot ask simple questions of clarification when they use yeah. very provocative and, and actually quite confusing expressions. <clears throat> Um, I was very encouraged the other week, and perhaps you could talk about this, Thaddeus. I, I was at a conference where I heard the wonderful Monique uh, Dusan, yeah, Dusan, sorry, yeah, yeah, uh, a wonderful uh, Christian uh, woman uh, talking about the importance of taking the past tense of "we are reconciled." Yeah. Yes, when you come to the issue of reconciliation, I suppose specifically within the church that has, that has to be more so than wider society. But I wonder if you could talk about, yeah, the, where does the fact that as Christians, we are already reconciled fit into the- Does it actually make a difference? Does it, does it make a difference in the current uh, discussion of race within mm. the Christian church? Well, let, let's hop in a DeLorean together. Let's generate <laughs> 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> Let's get our flux capacitors fluxing. That's, that's, a, that's a crazy level of gigawatts, actually, to require. <laughs> 1.21. That's like how many parsecs does it take to, 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 to complete the, the Kessel run? Yeah. Woo, this is fun, man. We're going to have you back on. <laughs> we can dork out for hours. Um, so, so let's time warp back to the first century and just imagine, you know, believers sitting around the Lord's table. And they face this, this humanly impossible task of ecclesia, of church, of gathering, of togetherness uh, in communities and demographics that had been at each other's throats for ages. Now, just imagine uh, you have, let's call him Joe the Jew sitting on one side of the table, and he's, you know, leering across the table and says, that's I don't know, we'll call him Gary the Greek. Hmm. And he, he's not Gary, my brother in Christ, where we've been reconciled. We've been adopted by the same father. We're redeemed by the same son. We're inhabited by the same Holy Spirit. No, that's, that's Gary the Greek and his people oppress my people, just like the Romans did and just like the Babylonians and the Assyrians. So that's not my brother, that's my oppressor. And then you hop across the table and talk to Gary the Greek, and he's, you know, leering the other direction saying, oh, well, that's, that's Joe the Jew. You know, his ancestors fought the Maccabean revolt. And, you know, I lost my, my great grandpa to those Jews. So, so what's the problem here is you have brothers in Christ who have been reconciled, treating each other not first and foremost on the basis of their new in Christ identity, uh, but on the basis of their ethnic identities. And Paul, if you read his letters in the New Testament, he would just have none of that because he realized that the minute you start playing that grievance game and the minute you start treating individuals as exemplars of their groups, you're, you're effectively planting C4 at the foundations of church unity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about that very imagery right there, and it's powerful. Yeah, I, and part of me wants to say, 
this is elementary stuff. Yeah, it ought the, to be. This is basic catechetical stuff. That's what staggers me about this whole debate. Mm-hmm. Is that- but see, that's the feedback loop of CRT is right. the fact that you think that, oh, yeah. Carl, mm-hmm. is just, it's just you're proving, mm-hmm. you're proving yeah. your white supremacy. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. This, is, this is why uh, John McWhorter, of course, African-American professor at, at Columbia. Not exactly an Orthodox Christian. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> professor at Columbia University, arguably one of the wokest campuses in the country. Yeah. Why he why he refers to critical race theory or wokeism as a religion, and yeah. of course he's he's doing this as a person who is non-religious, but he sees in it the world-shaping power that that critical race theory has. Now, I, okay, so I've got I've got Carl Truman and, and Thaddeus Williams with me here, and and there, there's a sense in which. Um, you, you two, your your most recent books here. We are the most popular guys in Christendom. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Kind of a big I, deal. I'm not right. I've got one guy writing on race. I got another guy writing on transgenderism. It's just it's 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 a it's a win win. So my, my what I'm what I'm looking at here is that when we think about human personhood, which in a sense both of you are writing about here, because CRT offers a version of personhood, really, um, it, almost at a metaphysical level. Um, Carl, you delve into this, obviously, in your book. So uh, I wonder if you two guys could riff a little bit on on some, I'm going to use this word, on, on, on any, any intersectionality between, your, uh, <laughs> between how you have wrestled through what we're dealing with here, whether it's from uh, the, the gender revolution or now this, this, this woke revolution or CRT revolution, because they both speak into the issue of personhood in highly religious ways, if you will. Sure. Yeah. I, I just want to clarify one thing. So Carl's fabulous book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, you know, it's, it's zeroed in primarily on, you know, gender questions and sexuality mm-hmm. questions. And you mentioned that mine is dealing primarily with race. Well, mine deals with race and sexuality. So it yes, actually covers true. both. So it's that much better <clears throat> yep. than Carl's book. Um, so if any listeners have, you know, I got 20 bucks. I can only buy one. <laughs> you might want to go. You know. Yeah. I, I think that's an excellent point. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. No, can we pull the record at this point? <laughs> I want, I'm I getting very concerned about the way this interview is going. <laughs> I just want to beat him. He's he sold a dozen and a half, but I'm trailing right. behind. So just trying to trying to pursue equity here. Equitable thought, outcomes. Thought, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, to, to the actual question, joking aside, um, you know, one of the things I appreciate about Carl's work is he's he's telling us a cultural and an intellectual history of you know, this, this shifting concept of identity and I get to define myself and um, I need to conform the objective world to my subjective world, not vice versa. And you can trace that historically, you know, we could talk about the Frankfurt School, we could talk about, um, you know, even going back to, to Nietzsche and some of his concepts, you can talk about Jean-Paul Sartre with our existence precedes our essence. We, we can trace all these fascinating lines, you know, the queer theory of Judith Butler and some of the deconstructionism of Michel Foucault. We could have that conversation, but, you know, I, I'm coming at this where if we want to trace it back to its actual theological origin, if we rewind, hop back in that DeLorean and go to Genesis 3, the serpent's temptation there, you will be 
like God, knowing good and evil. And I, I scratched my head about that passage for years, and I found uh, a few breadcrumbs that led me on the right path um, with some help from Abraham Kuyper and reading some old rabbinic literature, where that phrase, knowing good and evil, knowing isn't like intellectual or even experiential knowledge. It's, it's ancient Hebrew shorthand for you know something because you made it the way it is. You get to define the meaning of something. And then good and evil isn't just, these aren't moral binaries. In ancient Judaism, you would name opposites to describe everything in between. Hmm. So if we were ancient Jews and I said, you know, black and white, I'm, it would be understood. I'm referring to every color. If I said, you know, the Beatles in Creed, it would be understood that I'm referring to every rock band ever. <laughs> the Beatles in <laughs> Creed. <laughs> the, the best and the worst. And I'm referring to everything. So this little idiom there in Genesis 2 and 3, you will be like God knowing, that is, you get to define, you get to be the maker of good and evil, which is shorthand for everything. You get to define reality. You get to define the meaning of your own biology, you get to define the meaning of marriage. You get to define, you know, the quote Justice Kennedy in the Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, you get to define the mystery and meaning of existence. And so, I think in that biblical light, we can see a lot of what's happening in the transgender movement today as just an echo of the original temptation going back at, at the opening of Genesis. Now, that's an interesting take because you could, you know. I think at the heart of my book is the, is the rise of the idea of, of the victim as virtuous, period. Hmm. And one could say, you know, well, what is a victim? Well, the victim is the person who is not being allowed to be God on their terms. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting, you, as you were saying that, Thaddeus, I was thinking, yeah, this ties together, doesn't it? Uh, the victim is the one who is not being allowed by society or somebody to be God on their terms. Which and isn't that part of an exegesis of that passage that, that makes a lot of sense that yes. the serpent almost paints Adam and Eve as victims like, oh, you're being oppressed because right. yeah. God yeah. wants to hog all the hegemonic power yeah. himself. Yeah, He's trying to keep you down. So yeah. speak and, truth to power and eat the fruit. Yeah. Right. And the language that God is using is oppressing you. I mean, it's, a, it's an act of linguistic deconstruction that the serpent engages in. Mm. I, did have, yeah. I did have one person email me and say, I read your book, waste of time. I could have just read Genesis 3. Why didn't you start with Eve? And, oh, well, yeah, on one level, it, that's true, but I hope I made some contribution. <laughs> so, well, Thaddeus, it's been great having you on. There's so much more we could we could speak about. Maybe we'll 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 bring you back. Yeah, we'll I think to. this issue yeah, let's is do it again. That was this fun. issue is not going to go away. Yeah. We do want to strongly recommend your book to our listeners. It's confronting injustice without compromising truth. Twelve questions Christians should ask about social justice. It has a foreword by the legend. Legendary John M. Perkins. Uh, it's published by Zondervan Academic. If you go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, we'll have uh, a few copies uh, which we'll give away to, to those of you who enter for the draw there. Uh, if you're not fortunate enough to win a copy, please buy a copy, especially, I think, if you're a pastor or an elder or even a parent uh, facing mm -hmm. questions coming yeah. from your kids. Uh, this is the kind of book that will help you. Uh, I think take the sort of questions that you're going to be asked seriously mm -hmm. and yet offer good, solid 
orthodox Christian responses. There's always a temptation, I think, when we face with questions about justice to polarize very quickly and not to take the question seriously. This book does not do that, and I think it will help you in 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 hearing what people are trying to say to you and giving a good, solid biblical yeah. response. And if you've got a kid that's going off to college, get it for them and send it with them. Yeah. And yeah. encourage them to read it. Yeah. So thanks again for being with us, Thaddeus. So thank hey, it's you. been a pleasure. Thanks to all of the listeners out there. I don't believe a word what he says about my book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, when people say to me, which book of yours should I buy? We say, don't buy a book of mine. Buy something by J.I. Packer. It will be far more useful to you. <laughs> so thanks for coming on, Thaddeus. Thanks to yeah. our audience for listening. And we look forward to being with you all again next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. We're not live, so if you say anything that that you wish you hadn't said, we can remove that. We keep it on file to blackmail you with in the future. But uh, I've right. been known to have theological Tourette's where I spontaneously blurt out damnable heresy. Right, exactly. But I'll just blurt out like monothelitism or something, just with no context or anything. So just keep an eye out for yeah, that. Yeah. Yesterday was St. Cyril of Alexandria's uh, feast day in the Eastern calendar, and I sent out a death to all Nestorians uh, text to a number of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Western Reformed Seminary is a Bible-believing Presbyterian seminary in the great Pacific Northwest. Their mission is to prepare church leaders who are spiritually grounded, knowledgeable, capable, and dedicated through solid theological training. Academic degrees such as Masters of Biblical or Theological Studies, as well as the Masters of Christian Ministry, with emphasis in Biblical Counseling, Missions, or Church Ministry. Along with degree programs, students may take a class as a standalone for credit or audit. Although residency classes offer the best learning environment, Western Reform Seminary offers interactive, synchronous classes for students unable to attend in person, as well as concentrated classes in January and May every year. For more information, visit wrs.edu or email registrar at wrs.edu. Western Reformed Seminary.